0: Yo, get in the car, you're in the
1: show. (laughs) Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. Today's episode is the third in season two, which was recorded remotely, because the person who was nominated by the guest from season one has found themselves stranded outside of China due to covid The first was Catherine Wong from episode 4, who was stuck in Peru. The second was Alex Schoer from episode 11, who was stuck in California. And today's guest, Björn Dalman, is stuck in Sweden. So you'll hear the difference in sound quality immediately. In fact, there's quite a loud hiss in Björn's audio, which makes it sound like he's doing his side of the interview from a pit full of snakes but I hope you can fiddle with your volume controls and find a way to make this a comfortable listen. I promise you it's worth it. Today's guest, Björn, is a professional clown, which might make it one of those subjects that can be a polarizing love-hate situation. If you love clowns, please listen, you will learn something new. And if you detest clowns and wish you could vaporize them all with the press of a button, I promise you will also enjoy this conversation. It shouldn't take you long to realise that, at least for some people, it takes a surprising amount of thoughtfulness and intelligence to make yourself the object of stupidity. Thank you so much, Björn. You are a professional clown, is that right? Yes, that is right. And uh, here is what our mutual friend Maple said about you.
2: Uh, his name is Bjorn. He's from Sweden. I-, I met him on comedy. He's a very funny clown. And then later on we worked together in a charity hospital and I talk more and I feel like he's very warm-hearted and uh, he's very professional.
1: Yeah. How did you and Maple first get to know each other? What's your story? Well, there was this new comedian
0: at Kung Fu Comedy and she was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and it also
1: turned out she was a super nice person simple as that so i am guessing what object you have brought today that in some way exemplifies your life here in china but uh why don't you explain what you've brought
0: well <laughs> why don't we do this i will put it on and you tell me what you see
1: <laughs>
0: you like this so this is, this is my red clown nose, the nose that I'm wearing when I'm doing shows. And I will take it off now because I think we will scare listeners away. <laughs> I just did a tour because in Sweden, kindergartens kept open, right? And we were allowed to do shows
1: for about 10 kids. Well, you mentioned that you are in Sweden. You are one of the people in this series that I am interviewing remotely, which is a shame. But I'm very grateful that we could still do this. Whereabouts in Sweden are you right now? Uh, I'm in my hometown.
0: It's called Uppsala. It's the fourth biggest city of Sweden. I came to consider it a very, very small town.
1: It's a different life to what you normally would have been used to in Shanghai. I hope that you can come back as soon as possible. How long have you actually lived in Shanghai?
0: I've considered Shanghai my base uh, since 2014, when I started studying Chinese at the Shanghai Theatre Academy. And then I've been, you know, student visas, uh, business visas. I finally got my working visa. And now I couldn't even enter with it because of the pandemics. So I have to start a process all over. But I yes, uh, six years.
1: But that's not where your China story started, right? You had a connection long before that, didn't you?
0: Yes. So I guess it started with my hippie parents. So I grew up in a house where... You know, they would talk about Taoism. My mother started doing Tai Chi in the late 80s. And then my father started doing Tai Chi. And they were these kind of parents. I remember I was 14 years old and I came home from school and I just feel horrible. And I felt so stressed about everything. And my mother gave me this book that's called The Tao of Poo," as in Winnie the Pooh. And that was my introduction to Taoism which of course was linked to the Tai Chi they kept talking about. And something just clicked inside of me and I was like, wow, this is it. From that point, I also picked up Tai Chi, Tai Chi Chuan. Then in 2010, I I was drawn into this international theater project that toured Sweden, England and Shanghai. And it was so funny at the same time as I got this job, I was at the gym and I saw a guy in the sauna and I had noticed him in the gym because he was doing other exercises I'd never seen before and he did it with an intensity that I'd never seen before. I was like, who is this weirdo? And I noticed he had a Chinese dragon tattoo, right? But this was like old style on his chest. And I was like, what? And then I hear him saying to another guy in the sauna that I just came back. I've been on a Chinese mountain for a year. So I asked this guy in Chinese... Was it the shaolin mountain and he answered in chinese no it's the wudang mountain
1: ah and i was like what
0: you know the wudang mountain from crouching tiger hidden dragon the film i asked is this mountain for real i thought it was a, a legend And it's like yeah i just been there so i started training for him of course he moved back to the wudang mountain Jakob is, is his name. And when I was in Shanghai performing, I, I contacted him saying, Hey, I, I'm in China. Can I come to Wudang and just, you know, visit and take some pictures? He said, No. If you come here, you have to practice. So I went there for 10 days. I practiced. I was literally laying on the schoolyard next to the temple, crying of pain. And I was like, This is it. And I had just started my company back in Sweden. We just started to receive funding. We were doing well. No, this is it. So I changed my life and I was like, okay, I'm going to do 100-day basic course on this mountain.
1: Whoa, 100 days? Of pain. Oh. (laughs) Of painful Tai Chi practice. Well, we have got to the part of the story where you are doing Tai Chi on a mountain. (laughs) Yes. And I can't see how that is connected to you now working as a clown.
0: Well, <laughs> I wish I had a super smart answer. The The answer <laughs> is no connection. I've always been interested in clowning. There was a company in Sweden, 123 Stunk. They found a way to do clowning for grown-ups. So what they did was that instead of making these slapstick kind of mistakes, like, you know, falling on your ass they found a way to translate these kind of mistakes to psychological mistakes. So they started to do Shakespeare plays as clowns. And this totally blew my mind. I saw their version of of Macbeth. It was a huge game changer for me. I was like, wow. So since that day, I was like, I have to be a clown. And I had also heard about this organization called Clowns Without Borders. They went to war zones, playing clown shows for kids in refugee camps. And then nowadays they go to all kind of underprivileged uh, children in in crisis, as to say. So I wrote to them and saying that, hey, I, I really want to work with you guys. I heard about you. What you do is amazing. And they say, well, we don't have a budget to create shows. You have to have your own routine already. And I was like, well, I never, I never did clowning. I never studied clowning. But then in 2012, I worked with a guy, an Indian actor named Rupesh Tilu. So he was working with Clowns Out Borders. I directed him. We did a clown play about environmental refugees. We went on a tour to USA with that play, UNESCO Center for Peace invited us to play. And the last day of that tour, he was supposed to go to a school for deaf children to do the show. And he wakes me up in the morning, staring at me with big eyes, saying that Bjorn, he, he couldn't pronounce my name, Bjorn, so he always say Bjorn, did you ever do clowning? I was like, I did a one-hour workshop six years ago, why? He said, get in the car, you're in the show. <laughs> I was like, how do I develop a clown character? And he said, find a costume. So Rupesh gave me a crown that he uses in another show. And he gave me the flippers that we did in this show about environmental refugees. And he looked at the crown and he looked at the flippers and said, okay, you're the frog king, get in the car. (laughs) And in the car he said, okay, if the kids laugh, stay. And your goal is to stay for one minute. And I enter the stage, and then I have no idea what happens. Ten minutes after, I see Rupert's waving, like, get off the stage, it's my turn. (laughs) And so the Frog King was born.
1: That actually is your character now. Oh, totally. I did more than 400 shows with the Frog King. Oh. Yeah. So there it was, the birth of the Frog King.
0: That was the birth of the Frog King. And the Rupert said that, okay, now we have a clown show. Let's go to Clowns Without Borders, Sweden and say we want to make a Clowns Without Borders tour to India. And that was another life changer because we played for children living on the streets. Uh, We went to orphanages for kids infected by HIV from birth. And we also went to the red light districts where women who were trafficked as children are being locked into brothels and their kids... They hide under their mother's beds when the mothers have customers and we perform for these kids and the way those kids laugh when we perform, I never heard anything like that. Wow. I am not a religious person, but seeing those kids laugh, that's the only religion I need. I don't understand how there can still be happiness and hope and laughter in them. We kept doing this project year after year. We went back to these kids. Second year, they were laughing as much. Third year, they said, we want our mothers to see the show. Because there were kids there who never in their entire life seen their mothers laugh. They fell off their chairs laughing.
1: Mm.
0: So, of course, this gave me some new perspectives on what art can do and what clowning can do. Then I came to Shanghai in 2014. I'm gonna be at the Shanghai Theater Academy to study Chinese. And uh, at the school, there was this Swedish lady who was at the moment doing a PhD in directing. Her name is Maya Stina Johansson, Maya Lauscher. And she ran a company doing children theater in the way that Sweden got world famous for in back in the 80s in Shanghai. And I was like, oh, my God. And she was going to reopen the play. She asked me to to direct the reopening, which I did. I said, let's do test shows. And since we anyway do test shows, we might just as well give them for free. And since we're giving it away for free, why don't we find these underprivileged children here in Shanghai? And we did, and it went so well. We had amazing workshops afterwards, and we were like, whoa, this is it. So in 2015, we created a Clowns Project, the first ever in China. We targeted children and migrant workers. And we started touring schools and kindergartens with a new clown show that we made. And nowadays it is the Frog King going around and I involve Chinese actors. I train them in my workshops and then they go with me as my sidekicks. I let them learn the way I learned. I say, okay, get on the stage, stay for a minute, then I'll take over. And then we just build and build around it. Nowadays, I'm mostly touring with a Chinese actor named Shao. I am the Frog King. He's the Todd Emperor. The whole concept is that the audience should feel that it's their show. They are the most important people in the world.
1: In that case, do you see a difference between, let's say, when you're doing the Frog King in India with that particular audience versus a Chinese audience?
0: When it comes to the children, not at all, because children understands it. But the grown-ups, I mean, India has a very, very rich theater tradition, a lot of variety, all that. In India, they kind of accept this with an open mind. But in China, you have this, well, first you have this concept of biaoyan, right? Performance here is always someone is showing a skill, and then it's up to the audience to judge it so just this talking to the audience you can see that grown-ups are like what is going on here and then also like when we go to schools in china the first thing they ask me is what are you gonna teach the children and i say to these teachers nothing i just want them to be happy and they say why mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, but then i do the show when they come up afterwards and so they say "Oh, the kids were laughing i say i know no but they were so happy I said, i know Everything, you know, it has to serve a purpose. And when I say, no, I'm not interested in that, that is a huge cultural barrier.
1: Wow, well, we've come across something interesting, which is the deeper philosophy behind the clowning. And have you just said what it is? Like, is it simply to make people laugh and that's it? Or is there something more to it?
0: Well, I'm the kind of person who likes to think there's always something more to it. I think the key word is here and now because if we meet in laughter, then that is the only thing that exists right now. You can't feel angry when you're laughing. You can't feel sad the very moment you're laughing. And as simple as it sounds, that is the key. And you can connect a whole life philosophy around that. I would say it's about dignity. My recent trip was to Nigeria. We were playing for former child soldiers. 20-year-old guys who, from the age of 9, 10, were forced to be soldiers, and then they were liberated, put into prison. You don't want to know what these guys have been through or what they have done to other people. But at the very moment, you look in their eyes, you make them laugh, and you share the joy. There is no history. There is only this sacred room where we are who we are deep inside.
1: Yeah. Well, we've talked about the aspects that are positive with clowning. I've got to mention the negative aspects, which is all the more prevalent these days, right? I mean, you know where I'm going with this. It's the archetypal image of the clown being something scary, especially for adults. So where does that come from and what's your reaction to it?
0: Well, I think there are many angles to that. I think one is this now, I forgot this word, but there's this psychological phenomenon as to say that the more human something gets, the more we identify up to a certain point where it's almost human, but not. And then it's just scary.
1: I know it. It's called uncanny valley.
0: Uncanny valley. I should remember that word. <laughs> so that's one thing. And then there's also this aspect of because the clown is the trickster, right? It's the trickster archetype. And the trickster represents chaos the human need to control chaos it's i mean you can find it in any mythology it's very deep our need to control chaos and clown represents chaos and then there's also this i mean characters who has the power to draw children to them it's always scary and should be scary should always be careful for people who the children wants to run to right for obvious reasons So these are the, like, theoretical psychological explanations, I think. But then there are so many clowns. They haven't studied the technique. They just wear some handing out balloons at some events. And kids are so smart. They know this is bull****. Right. And then you have this person with weird makeup, a fake smile. I think the fake smile is a big part of it. They run up to the kids doing weird stuff. and. Many times there's a very weird situation where the parents are pushing the kids like go and hug the clown and the clown go, the kid just wants to die. Yes. So you cross the border. You cross the border where the kids don't feel safe anymore. I mean, there's a technique I teach this in my workshops. Whenever you enter a kid's personal space, you must ask permission. You look the kid in the eye, you read the body language. Does this kid wants me to take one step closer or not? So again, it's about respect. It's the kids or the person's experience, not my need to be funny.
1: How interesting. And then let's go back to China. If you talk about the traditions of clowning, is there any equivalent at all in Chinese history?
0: Well, yes and no. I mean, the Beijing opera has the clown tradition. They have the Xiao Cho, the little ugly, literally, which has the white face. But it's believed to be a bad character. It's a character doing wrong, doing bad things, making a mess. And this is very difficult because when I'm in China and I say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Xiao Cho, the association is not a funny guy who makes kids laugh. The association is a villain. So we're struggling with this. All of us who are working with this, we're like, should we come up with a new name? Should we call it Mime Artist? Because people love Charlie Chaplin. And yeah, it's, we're, we're working on it. Then there's this other very interesting parallel. I also started teaching clowning in China. And it's been amazing because I really want to teach the philosophy of it. And the philosophy is basically celebrate your mistake in China, because the culture is very strong that you can't lose your face, you can't make a mistake. I had Chinese students, grown up people, starting to cry in my workshop, really saying it's the first time in my life I'm allowed to make a mistake. And this is where clowning becomes really difficult. And, you know, we talked about the scary clowns. It's not about acting stupid. It's about daring to let people perceive you as stupid which means you have to be as stupid as you actually are. You know, sometimes it hurts you for real. And then you want to put on a mask that is not the red nose, but this other kind of mask to protect yourself. But that's when you become the scary clown. That's when you feel it's fake and something weird is going on. Every joke I do on stage is a mistake I did for real in some show. I panic, but then the art is to share that true panic with the audience and let them laugh. And it removes the shame. The shame washes away, and you, you're you're able to say to yourself, "I'm okay."
1: Interesting. Well, I mean, I have been in the camp of not really understanding or enjoying clowns in the past, <laughs> but. You've really explained it to me, you know, the way that you use the art of clowning to almost battle the dehumanizing, the isolating nature of modern society. I I can definitely see where clowning plays a part in that.
0: I think so, yeah, because the concept of presence is so rare these days. It's so important to cherish these moments when we're in the same room laughing at the same time. And I tell you, Standing on a stage or a schoolyard, see 400 kids at the same moment just burst into laughter, it's, it's something else. It takes you to another yeah. world. For a few seconds, you are in a world where what you did not believe was possible is actually possible. And then you're, you're in a land that is magic for real.
1: And when you're in that land, you can change things. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Björn. I really appreciate that. And I hope that I can see one of your shows when you finally are allowed back into China. I will invite you. Let's move on to part two. Yes. Right. Well, let's move on to the questions then. My 10 questions. Yes. Okay. Question number one. What is your favorite China-related fact?
0: The fact that you can walk in a park and you meet old men and women who actually has amazing Kung Fu skills. I have this 70 something year old teacher in Shanghai. He was teaching me spear fighting, this long three meter spear. And he showed me and a bunch of other 30 something guys, okay, so this is how you hold the spear in one hand. And four of us, we couldn't lift the spear, it was too heavy. And this teacher without an effort, just takes it up with one hand, hold the very edge of it and balance it perfectly. And you see these things happening all the time, and it's like, yes, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Fairy tale. China is still alive.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. They know s***. <laughs> yeah. They know shit. Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? Tai haola, too good.
0: Tai is the same word as in Tai Chi, meaning too much. Mm. Uh, the, it refers to this whole Taoist theory of yin and yang, when something becomes too much of one thing, it turns into its opposite so Thai would be the black dot in the white field of the yin and yang symbol and you see these things all the time I very much like this expression it has this aspect of a very everyday speaking but there's also this very
1: very deep philosophical meaning of it like you feel the depth what is your favorite destination within China
0: My heart will always be on Wudang Mountains, but what I heard is that they did what they did in Shaolin Mountain. They banned all the schools on the mountains and they built a village below, which is,
1: yeah. Okay, well, this is a funny question. So the question I normally ask next is, if you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? But what was the reality of the situation? What have you missed the most and what haven't you? It's so funny because I don't feel that I left China.
0: I am totally still in China. Well, I miss my
1: friends. I miss the people. Yeah. And what about the things that you didn't miss? Like, what would you miss the least? Oh, the silence of Sweden. I love it.
0: (laughs) Ah. I am very sensitive to sound. Cars honking, drilling, people screaming, crowded restaurants. You know, that's the one thing. I feel it in my body. There's a higher level of tension when all this noise is going on
1: yeah i was asking you to find a quiet place in your part of the world and i was
0: like yeah well what room should i pick and
1: (laughs) yeah and i'm sure that any noise in the background we heard in this recording would have come from outside of my window not yours is there anything that still surprises you about life in china every day so I, i do kung fu in people's park and i just
0: remember going to the public bathroom there and they put a face scanner you have to scan your face to get your toilet paper i understand the logics of it because i hear people just take toilet paper and they bring back home to save money and but it's just it's so bizarre it's so many steps that's like could this have been done in another way no they put face scanner for toilet paper does this machine calculate how much paper i need (laughs) because <laughs> it see my chubby Western face and it gives me a lot.
1: <laughs> like every country has their way of craziness. Yeah. You've reached my level of humor now talking about toilets. so <laughs> Yeah,
0: <I'm happy. laughs> that's good. That's <laughs> That's where I feel comfortable as well.
1: <laughs> where is your favorite place to go out to eat or drink or just hang out?
0: Well, I love going to new restaurants and every time I find... A small little restaurant that becomes my favorite. Every time I go out from Shanghai and I come back, that restaurant is closed down.
1: <laughs> yeah. Can you think of one particular one? I had a period when I was totally into
0: Xinjiang food. And there was this one small little Xinjiang restaurant. Oh, and there was this other one. It was called Seahorse Sushi that had grilled eel sushi Oh my, it was amazing. And they made their homemade uh, spicy mayo sauce. It was, I think, 2017 or 18 it
1: disappeared. I don't remember. Wow. What is the best or worst purchase you have made in China? If you want to buy magic tricks in Sweden, like
0: I have this wand that it's so tiny you can hide it in your hand and then it becomes two meters if you want to buy it in Sweden, you have to pay like 800 RMB, and you buy it in China for like 50 RMB. Mm. So, <laughs> and I didn't know any magic when I started doing the magic shows. I bought things. What goes with the character? Like, what can I do? Now I like. I tried to make a flower go big. I say, "Go big, bam!" and the wand goes big. And I look at the flower getting angry with the flower, and the kid goes banana, screaming, "Look at the wand! Look at the wand!" I say, "Yeah, the wand is big. Whatever the flower." oh my God, the wand is big. (laughs) I could never do that in Sweden because it would cost me 30,000, which I very much don't have. But this show happened in China because I could buy, I had two suitcases filled of magic gadgets that I was just playing around with.
1: Yeah. What is your favorite WeChat sticker?
0: It's a pink dragon hugging uh, a girl and it's a story to it uh I in two thousand and fifteen I met this Chinese girl on what was then called China Love Cupid. I think this was before the Tinder era. She didn't speak English at all, so it was this total cliche of trying to communicate, trying to figure out are we dating or what she was talking about marriage on I think the fourth date you know. All the clichés were there. But she looked like that little girl in the sticker. And when I talk to her, I feel like a big, pink, fluffy dragon. Uh, so to me, <laughs> that series of dragon and little girl sticker became our little story. So it's it's a sticker attached to memories more than anything else.
1: Beautiful. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it was beautiful. How long did it last in the end? I I don't know if it even started, but... <laughs> we're still in touch though as as friends it's no nice. drama just I, I wish i could speak chinese
1: well it's chicken and egg you know once you have a chinese girlfriend that's when the language comes to you right
0: yeah and you know that's what the, the chinese teacher said at the school okay step number one find girlfriend step number two here's your textbook
1: <laughs> what is your go-to song to sing at ktv the title song of crouching tiger hidden dragon of course
0: because it's so beautiful and me trying to hit tones it's just it's a mess
1: (laughs) what's it called does it have a name in chinese
0: uh because of love or for the sake of love
1: brilliant okay i don't actually know that i'm gonna have to find that out how does
2: it go
0: Oh, I hate you. It's a girl singing and
1: yeah.
0: (laughs) I'm having fun. The audience is like, ah, bloody hell.
1: Have you ever thought about incorporating it into a show in that case? Oh, that's brilliant. That
0: is so no i think frog king will have to sing this
1: and finally what other china related media or sources of information do you rely on
0: i try to listen to friends from different places like i have my chinese friends who rely on what they hear from their friends and i have my chinese friends who really like you know try to dig into things And I have my my American friends, my English friends, my Australian friends, my Swedish friends. So I I try to hear all the stories and try to not fall into conspiracies, but then also try to be critical.
1: Yes. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Björn. We've talked about Tai Chi. We've talked about toads. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Thank you. This was a true pleasure.
1: Well, the only thing I have to ask you is the final question, which is, out of everyone you know in china who should i interview for the next season of mosaic of china
0: well i have a very good friend she's in a way part of my china history uh, because she was an associate director in that project that brought me to shanghai her name is elaine or huang qilin she's a very good friend a film director mainly these days i think you should have a chat with her i think she might have some really nice perspectives on things
1: Amazing, I can't wait to meet her. I think that would be the first film director on the series, so I look forward to that. Awesome! Today's episode is a long one, so let me try to race through this outro. First off, there is also a longer premium version of every episode of the season. You can find them at Patreon internationally, and on iFaDien in China. There was so much more of Björn's story that we couldn't squeeze into half an hour, and here are a few clips.
0: It's a horrible city to do theater in, and I guess that's why I want to do it. <laughs> this is a show where we're constantly angry with each other. Babies can scream mom, mom, mom for an hour without getting hurt, and they actually use the same technique. Every silly little dream you project into China. You know, my teacher hits me if I make a mistake me falling on my ass. I mean, how beautiful can life get?
1: (laughs) Billy Skarsgård, he's a Swedish actor. Oh god, of course. We had the same clown teacher. Please also follow the images of today's episode on social media. Type in Mosaic of China on Instagram or Facebook and the right page will appear. Otherwise, add me on WeChat using my ID Mosaic of China and I'll add you to the group there myself. Highlights from today's episode include, of course, Björn's object, the Red Nose, his favourite WeChat sticker featuring the love story of the little girl and the big pink dragon, and lots of photos of the Frog King in action. You may also have made some connections to other episodes of the show. For example, the Wudang Mountain at the heart of Björn's love story with China was the favourite destination of Abe Deo, the tour manager from Season 1, Episode 27. There's also a Shakespeare connection, because the effect that Macbeth played in Björn's life was very similar to the effect that seeing Othello had on the life of Nick Wu, the playwright from season one, episode 13. But maybe the biggest connection I made was between the story of clowning in China and that of drag told by the drag queen Coco Santi in season two, episode five. Björn said that clowning is about celebrating your mistakes And this concept of daring to let people see your stupidity is very similar to Coco Santi's philosophy of daring to let people see your weirdness and your imperfections. In a culture where cohesion and social conformity is the norm and where opportunities are fought for competitively, it's rare to see people allowing themselves to be this vulnerable. But it's not just China, we all have different personas that we exhibit differently depending on the context. So maybe the inspiration that we should take from the likes of Björn and Coco Santee is to try and be more like your authentic self. And let's all make sure that we aren't being the scary clown. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs, with artwork by Denny Newell. And since Björn was referred to season two by the comedian Maple Zwar from season one, there follows a catch up with Maple coming right up. Hello, Maple.
2: Hi, Oscar.
1: I'm so excited to see you again. It's been too long. (laughs) Too long, yeah. What happened to you during COVID? Where were you? Shanghai. You were here too?
2: Yeah. There's no shows. And then some people starting doing the online comedy. But it's weird, you know. There's no audience give you the immediately feedback. And you talk to a computer and people want to laugh or not laughing. It's really strange because sometimes the people won't turn their face on you just a name, right? You look at the computer, it's all names.
1: So when you did that one online event, did you already have material that was relating to coronavirus or was it too soon at that point?
2: It was too soon because it was too depressed. I can't think about anything funny. (laughs) So I was just doing the older material. Yeah. Mm.
1: And this actually relates to what you were talking about in our episode, because you have that really interesting, I would say, childhood. Mm. Yeah. But you were saying that with the darker parts, you weren't ready to start making jokes about it. And I think everyone can appreciate that these mm. days, you know, and I have the darkest sense of humor. You know, you can shock me. I love that. Yeah. But I don't want to hear jokes about COVID right now myself. So yeah. I can totally understand where you came from about mm-hmm. how you can't access that content right now.
2: Mm. But then what's funny is I just come back from my parents' house. I think I recovered a lot.
1: Tell me. Yes.
2: Yeah, so when i looking back at my childhood, it was very sad. It's very dark. There was a family violence. So I was always feeling really, really bad about it after I was 18, all this adulthood, I trying to avoid my parents. However, this time I going back, you know, they're getting old. So they're getting emotional. So my mom and me are shopping. And then we just brought up this and my mom admit what she have done to me. And then she said, Oh, we're busy surviving. We can't look after you. That's why we send you away. And your dad has a temper issue, but he's getting better now. And then we love you both. Like we love you and your brother both. Like I was crying but I don't want my mom to see my tears right I just turn away and just switch to another topic but it was so touching because she never admit that and then she said I'll look after your kids if you have one you know we'll, we'll make it up to you we'll give you more love and I know we didn't give you much love you know it's it's just uh, what was, how to say it? you know it's covered me I know it's I don't know how to say this
1: no I, I mean you said it very well and that's something which even in the West it would be a very cathartic experience. But mm-hmm. here in China, where parents don't talk about their emotions to their children, like that's a huge deal.
2: Yeah, you know, all that hate and all that revenge kind of thoughts, just relax now. So when I look at my family, I can just like maybe talk about it, like trying to write some, maybe not comedy straightforward, but stories. I can write the story, talk to my mom, and then maybe in the future I can make it into comedy because myself already relief. Wow, that
1: That is such a big deal. I'm so happy for you, really. I'm looking forward to more content Mm -hmm. in that case.
2: Because I feel like sometimes people just, oh, I'm a comedian, so I write everything into comedy. But for me, I feel like comedy is just a way of expressing yourself. But there are other ways to express yourself. So I'm not very keen to, like, everything has to be comedy. And then the comedians here, I think we're all amateur. So we're still finding our way, like, what kind of comedians we want to be. I don't think people are ready for that big story yet. Yeah. I feel like comedy is a way in the bigger sense is like a critique about the culture, right? And if you're in the culture, you can't critique, then what's the point of doing comedy? So, uh, September I started this online master's degree. It was about education and psychology and stuff. I feel like it's opened my mind and I need to learn more and read more, maybe after this COVID, right, I can find better jobs. And if I want to reopen my school, I have better knowledge. Mm. So this is a challenge. I feel like if the situation is bad and you can't do something, then you just stay and learn. Yes. You can't earn, you just learn. It's just like that.
1: That's well said. So you're using this time to just expand your knowledge on a certain area. Mm. You're saying that maybe comedy won't be the option. Maybe you'll s- say goodbye to comedy.
2: It's just for now, because I, I can't, really do comedy. So I'm thinking maybe deep down, get more material. I already started writing more material. I just haven't test out yet. Right. So I'm just writing and waiting for the right time. Um, I went back to Beijing. I did a comedy set just like two days ago. It was great. I missed that feeling. The thing is, uh, after the last time we talked, uh, I was talking about how I do Chinese comedy or English comedy in China. Right. Yes, wait this guy to. Okay remember your point okay it's finished yeah okay so in the, uh last time we met i talk about how i do comedy in china but after the you know interview i joined the mongolia comedy festival and i did pretty good i remember really, that really, good. Yes. really
1: really good you messaged me when you were there that's great yeah yeah
2: and i did uh, three headliners in <laughs> they're coming back Fucking <laughs> hell! oh my god this is comedy right now
1: okay hang on it's
2: okay. we haven't got any who the hell gives them If you got it there It was very funny If you just put into it
1: Okay <laughs> Okay carry on
2: Okay So I joined the Mongolia Comedy Festival It was great And then I went to uh, South Korea Did three headliners Really? So Seoul uh, Usain and Busan Nice And I did I represent China Did the Thailand comedy competition and I went to Philippines, did gigs all over the Asia. I, I tried. That wow. was since last time we talked. So in Mongolia, I did one joke about Mongolia. They laugh. So I was, oh, maybe I can try it more. So it's like, you're always pushing the audience. Push, push, push. And then you just get it. So right now, uh, I think my comedy has some normal jokes, old joke, like structured joke. But sometimes I just improvise. That, that was good. That was good.
1: It's just that ability to anticipate what the audience are projecting on you and undercutting that impression and surprising them.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. if you're doing comedy, not think about, oh, what I want to say, what I want to say, not focus on you. You can think about what's your audience want to hear and different audience want to hear different stuff. But sometimes if you just focus audience, you can't express yourself. So you need to balance both. Like, okay, say what I want to say, but say in a a accepted way.
1: Well, it sounds like it's going to work. Thank you so much for the update. Thank you. And, you know, it has been a hard year. You've been very honest about that. But it sounds like you're still motivated. And Mm. I know that you are going to be a success. So please continue. Thank
2: you so much. Please invite me back three years later. (laughs) Yes.
1: Well, that was the joke we said last time. You'll be far too big for me in three years. I I was saying 10 years before, but it sounds like you're on track to do well in three years. Mm. And before you leave, so... I am going to be releasing this at the same time as Björn's episode is coming Mm -hmm. out. So have you been in touch with him? He's been stuck in Sweden the whole time.
2: Yeah, I haven't been in contact with him for ages. Yeah, he's
1: stuck out, but I hope he'll come back soon. Yeah, hopefully. Well, here is a message to you, Björn. When you do come back...
2: Please visit us.
1: There you go. You heard it here. Thanks again, Maple.
2: Thank you, Oscar.